0: It out. Thank you, Craig. I think that seems like a really worthy project for us to, to look at how we might be able to assist and help um, to support other people uh, in other countries who, as, as Craig said, as challenging as it was for us, can't even imagine what it might be in, in uh, underserved countries where, where, you know, that would be. The challenge would be exponential, so we'll pray about that and uh, see where the Lord may lead on that sort of thing. Uh, I also want to add my expression of appreciation to all the moms that are here or that are present with us. Happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, You know, I hope it's a special day for you. I hope that that God blesses and encourages you, and no matter where you are in life, remember that God loves you and cares for you deeply, and that's one of the most important things that you can know. My Mother's Day gift to you today is that I'm going to keep teaching through Luke, uh, so you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> uh, last week, uh, I told you we'd be taking a break from Luke starting next week, and I was wrong about that. I had the dates wrong. On uh, May 23rd, we're going to begin our, our teaching on unity. I really hope uh, that you'll be a part of that and that you'll attend the unity service that we're going to be doing on June 13th. Uh, I've been continuing to meet with the other pastors. We're very excited about this and where God's leading this. Um, but today we're going to continue on in Luke. And if you've got a Bible and you'd like to follow along, if you'll head over to Luke chapter 8, please. Last week, as we began this chapter, Jesus told the parable of the sower, a very familiar one. And it was a parable that was sandwiched in between two um, strange revelations of a new kind of community that was forming around Jesus. We could say the new family of God. And Jesus indicated that. Being drawn into God's family wasn't an issue of a genealogical line anymore or familial inheritance, but it had to do with obedience. Submission to Jesus and his shaping of our lives is the indicator of family status with God. That's how we enter into the family of God through Jesus. I want to mention that when we say that, you know, that obedience becomes the the marker I don't want you to think, you know, oh, oh, you know, but I was like disobedient this morning. Am I out of the family of God or whatever? It's not that. We're not talking about being able to adhere to a religious code or anything like that. But it has to do with embracing as a way of life, the teachings of Jesus and moving in that direction. We've stated before, none of us do it well. It's not dependent on our ability to perform this. It's all dependent on Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. But our lives, our lives are affected by this. This salvation that we received begins to change us. We move in the direction. We, we learn what his values are and we, we embrace that kind of life. So that's what we're talking about. It's a life of following Jesus. That would even be a better way of wording it. Following his teachings. Following doesn't mean we're doing it perfectly, but it means that that's the direction we take in life. That's what occupies our hearts, our thoughts, our minds yeah, and even there, so right away, my mind, so just to qualify that, when even I say that, I'm not saying, you know, walking around saying, I don't think about anything but Jesus, you know. Yeah, well, you're at the dentist, and you need to think about flossing, too. But so, what I'm saying in this is that the general flow of our life is moving towards following Jesus. And this morning, we're going to read a very familiar account of Jesus calming a storm, and I think it is thematically tied to what we have looked at previously. And what I mean is, this is a historical account of a miracle that was done by Jesus. But I've said this more than once, that these miracles represent more than just stories about the cool things that Jesus did to get us really stoked, but it, but it's also a lived-out parable that helps us to understand what it means to follow Jesus in obedience and where following him may lead us. Because following Jesus in obedience is usually more than than... We bargained for. It's 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 more than it's it's more than just a mental ascent thinking, well I see some merit in this religion. It's more than just listening to stories about Jesus. Following Jesus is is leading us into a, a way of life that is filled with surprise and oftentimes adventure and that's what's going to involve the story that we're reading uh, about today. This sort of acted out for us. So if you're there in chapter 8 of Luke, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 22. It says, One day, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got in a boat, and they started out. And we're going to stop there for a moment, uh, because while this seems like a run-of-the-mill description to kind of set up the scene, you know, they were on land, now they're getting in a boat we need to take a look at what's happening here in this text because all three synoptic gospels contain this story and it's worded almost exactly in each one. That tells us something. There's an emphasis here. There's something that we're supposed to pay attention to. A pattern is being established here. Uh, And and the, the, the wording is exactly the same by Jesus in all three synoptic gospels. Jesus says, let's cross to the other side of the lake. And that is where this actually takes a controversial turn in this story. And we may think, well, what is the big deal about that? You know, why did the Messiah cross the lake to get to the other side? It's just, you know, what's, what's so controversial about that? So we need to examine that for just a minute. The The Galilean region was on the northwest part of the Lake of Galilee. It's in the northern part of Israel. And there were a lot of Gentiles there, you know, probably more than the Jewish people would have appreciated. But while there was a lot of Gentiles, it was still predominantly a Jewish Territory, and it was still part of Israeli territory. It was part of Israel. the The other side of the lake, the east side, was fully Gentile territory. It was the Decapolis, the region of ten cities, and and it was largely occupied by Gentiles and Greeks. and And, uh, and good, God fearing Jewish people did not venture into that territory. There's an interesting show on Netflix called Stiesel, and I don't know if has seen it, but it's about an ultra-Orthodox Jewish family. It's a current, you know, set in the current modern world, but it's a really interesting insight into Orthodox Jewish practices and mindsets. And, and even to this day, this would be backed up. Good God-fearing Jewish people did not go to that side of the lake because of all the Gentiles there that made it unclean. So this is Jesus saying to his disciples, hey, let's go where all the good people say we're not supposed to go today. And, and, and that is what makes it controversial. But this is the first thing we learn about following Jesus. And that is that obedience to Jesus is often going to lead us into uncomfortable places. Scripture does not seem to place a premium on you and I being comfortable at, at, at some point. Jesus never once says to his followers, hey, you know what? Find a spot that you are happy in, where you're comfortable, and you feel good about everything, and just wait there until I get back. He doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. Jesus never said take it easy. He said take up a cross and follow him. Wildly different concepts there. Jesus always seems to be nudging us out of our comfort zones, and that's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing challenge for us as humans because you know how it is. We as humans really prize comfort and, and stability. That's a priority for us. We want life to be as safe and as predictable as possible. We spend a lot of our time and our resources trying to minimize risk in our lives. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. I'm just saying that's what we're bent towards. We want our lives to be manageable so that anything that we face, we know we have the power to control it and, and keep it in uh, in rain. We want some sense of security, or at least the illusion of security so that we can be comfortable. And then that carries over into our pursuit of God. And all of a sudden, we find that as time goes on, we want God to be just like us. We want God to be only doing the stuff that we're interested in. And we want God's priority to be about something safe. And so really... For a lot of people, the decision is, well, let's, like, let's make obedience to God something uh, where we go and listen to someone talk about God for a little bit on Sundays, and then we can go back home and pursue our normal lives. But this is the challenge, because when we really inco- encounter the gospel Jesus, the, the Jesus that's revealed to us in the scriptures, he's saying, let's go someplace outside of that comfortable situation that you're in. And that's an ongoing challenge that's there from the Jesus of the Gospels to our lives. Let's go someplace uncomfortable. Let's go to the neighborhood. Let's go next door. See how we can serve the people there. Let's go talk to that person at work that everyone else is avoiding. Yeah, but that's not comfortable. Yeah, I know. Let's go. Let's, let's tackle some of society's issues and, and see what light the kingdom of God can bring to those things. Yeah, but I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, I know. Let's go. This is Jesus acting out what he's described in parable about scattering seeds anywhere and everywhere indiscriminately. And if we're going to follow Jesus in obedience, we're going to need to get in on that activity. We're going to find ourselves in situations that we wouldn't normally choose to be in on our own. And we're going to find ourselves with people that we wouldn't normally be with. And and sometimes I wonder, you know, I even wonder, I look at, I, I do a lot of reading, I do a lot of, of, of observation of the church at all in, in the United States. And I wonder, you know, if Jesus isn't surprising us this way, maybe we're just observing religious practices. Maybe we're following religious expectations instead of really following Jesus, the living Jesus, into all of the unexpected and strange places that that may lead us to. So Jesus tells the guys, let's go over to the unclean Gentile territory. And they all go, okay. And they all get in the boat and start out. We keep uh, reading verse 23. As they sailed across, Jesus settled down for a nap. Ah. Rob, you just said we were not supposed to be comfortable. What's going on? well? Okay, I said we're not supposed to be comfortable. Jesus can do what he wants. He's going to take a nap. Okay, so Jesus lays down for a nap. But soon a fierce storm comes down on the lake. The boat was filling with water, and they were in real danger. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, "Master, Master, we're going to drown!" And we'll stop there, because there it is. They're going to a place that religion says is off-limits, and now they're facing all of this hardship. Clearly, they're being punished for this. I can so easily imagine the disciples are thinking right along these lines. Can you imagine yourself thinking along these lines? While the text tells us plainly that this storm isn't the result of disobedience, we also realize that this is happening because they're following God's path laid out to them through Jesus. And this is an important lesson for us, I think, and that is that obedience to Jesus may lead us into the chaotic storms of life. The Jewish people You know, they were not seafaring people. That was left to uh, other groups of people. But even so, in the ancient world, for the most part, the sea is always representative of hardship and, and problems. Large bodies of water and the storms and the monsters that come from them become sort of quick identifiers that are describing the chaos that life generally throws at us. And this is all through the biblical text from beginning to end. In Genesis, we have the Spirit of God Uh, brooding over the chaotic waters that are there. Uh, uh, You've got the crossing of the Red Sea and the the things that are associated, the chaotic uh, elements associated with that. We've got Jonah in his storm and the chaotic waters. We've got Daniel in Revelation and the monsters that come out of the seas. The sea is always a place in scripture, is always a place of elemental chaos. It represents all that upsurges against the creative order of God. That's, the, that's the, the quick interpretation. That's the hyperlink that we're supposed to grab from this. And, and we're people who know very well what sort of chaos and disorder that can result when a storm rises up out of the sea and, and comes through. us. three years later and almost three years later, and some are still living in the aftermath of that. And we see reminders all around us of what sort of chaos can, can come out of the sea. And as I said, I believe this is an event that really happened here in Luke. But these stories carry deeper meanings than just entertaining stories about miracles. These stories are also pictures of the lives that we lead. And this storm that Jesus and the disciples are facing represents the chaos that this world seems to spring on us so suddenly and so randomly and unexpectedly in life. And certainly, we've known our share of chaotic events in the last few years. I mean, hurricanes and then pandemics and civil unrest, all of these storms of disorder that are here and present in our world. And the biggest lesson that we want to take from this is that storms just happen. Storms happen. They are part of this whole thing. The storms the disciples faced, that was not a result of anyone doing anything wrong this is just the stuff of a broken world. And I've, I've talked about this before at length, and I even point you back to our study in the book of Job. But it's so important for us as followers of Jesus to let go of what are almost superstitious notions that any time a storm pops up, any time something is critical happens in our lives, some sort of problems that uh, develop, some chaos hits us, we automatically seem to go to this idea that we're being maybe punished by God uh, for that. Uh, Something maybe that we're not even aware of yet that God's going to get us for. And again, I point you back to our study in the book of Job. That is not the way God operates. In fact, I'm telling you, it's important for us to let go of that because it is fairly pagan, that mindset, that idea about God. Granted, God will sometimes, we've seen the opposite of that. Sometimes we'll use circumstances to get our attention. Never punitively. God is not punishing. All punishment was dealt with on the cross. For us, as followers of Jesus, punishment's off the table. But as a way of getting us focused, as a way of getting our attention, certainly God can use circumstances. But I insist that we will know that that's the case we'll know what what is being addressed in our lives. There are circumstances that God's trying to speak to us through. We're going to recognize what that's about because scriptures never portray God as capricious, as some you know being who's messing with us just because he can. God does not operate like that. And honestly, I would say that stormy events used to get our attention are the exceptions because who in here is without sin? I mean, any storm in life that you face, you can automatically go back to something that you did wrong, right? And, and so we'd spend our whole time trying to make up for these things or trying to, you know, do, do, you know, move from one lesson to the next. I really believe it's the exception, and I believe we'll know without a shadow of a doubt that that's what that's about. But we live in a fallen world, and it's prone to chaos and disorder, and storms happen And it usually has nothing to do with us. I told this story before, but one time I I was going out to buy a truck. Uh, and I took a friend of mine from church who knew more about cars than I do, which means, you know, I know that you use a key to start the ignition, at least in my car, and, and, and you use these things. Uh, and that's about it. That's the extent of, of my knowledge of cars. So I took somebody with me who would look be able to look at the truck and determine whether or not it was a good purchase or not. But we got to where the truck was being stored And I'm not kidding, you know, we got there and it was late afternoon in the summertime and this storm blew up. You know how they can happen, especially inland. And it was just lightning and wind and buckets of rain coming down. And my friend looked at me and he said, do you think this is a sign that God doesn't want you to buy this truck? And I was looking around at the weather and I said, I think these are sea breezes interacting with the hot air (laughs) inland and that we should wait till this blows over before we look at the truck. I think that is uh, fair look, I bought the truck and that truck was great. It served me for almost, you know, 15 years before I gave it to somebody else. The thing is, chaos happens. And in the story we're reading, the disciples are confronted with a chaotic storm and Jesus seems to be absent. He's napping. So you know, how he can do that in a storm, that's mysterious, but beside the point. The disciples cry out in a way that mirrors so many of the Psalms. I cry to you in my distress. Where are you, Lord? That's so much like what the disciples are saying, and we can see then that this is a this is a story describing for us what it's like to follow Jesus. What happens to us at times when we're following Him? I can tell you, I've seen many times in my life where it seems like a storm is raging all around me, and it also seems like God is nowhere to be found, like Jesus is napping during my crisis, and yet. This story is encouraging us. He is still present. You may feel like he's gone, but he is still present. Just because he doesn't seem to panic like I do doesn't mean that he's not with me in this. He may be silent. He may seem distant from our immediate needs, but he is still present with us, working something, working something deep into our character, namely trust. And that's where the story takes another interesting turn. We're going to pick back up, continue reading verse 24. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Suddenly, the storm stopped and all was calm. And then he asked them, where's your faith? And we're going to stop there a moment. This is a strange turn in the story to me. I mean, having just calmed the storm Jesus looks at his disciples, and he doesn't say, you know, there you go, or yep, problem solved, or who's the Messiah now, or anything like that. No, he challenges them, where's your faith? Where's your faith? And that seems, I don't know, given the nature of the circumstances, seems kind of harsh to me. Uh, And it's interesting that there's no qualifier on his question. Where's your faith? Faith in what? Faith that this will all blow over somehow? Faith that they can muddle through? What does he expect them to have faith in? The only obvious answer is faith in the one who's with them in the boat. When Jesus is in the boat, when a journey is with him, when he's the one that we're following and seeking to obey, we can't base our future on what we've known in the past And here I believe that obedience to Jesus is going to lead us into new levels of trust. Trust in what, Rob? Oh, trust in him. I think Jesus is rebuking the way that they managed their fear because it showed, if not a lack of faith, a misplaced faith. Jesus asked why they don't have faith, but he means something specific. He's talking about himself. Obviously, they've got faith. They have faith. They have faith that the boat is going to go down and they have faith that they're going to drown and die. The real question here is where they're putting their faith. They put their faith in the chaos. They believed that the chaos was the greatest power and they believed that because they knew that that chaos was not something that they could handle on their own, that they could fix by their own strength. And that is the real issue here. Obedience to Jesus is a call to put our trust in God, not in our own ingenuity, not in our abilities or strength. We're called to a fundamental trust that God knows what's happening with us. God cares about what's going on and that God can act and intervene. In verse 24, when the disciples go to Jesus, it may have been different if they'd have gone to him and said, you know, Jesus, this storm is really bad and this boat is old and it looks like it's falling apart, what should we do? What's the best course of action? What would you do? Instead, they wake Jesus up and it's really important to note that they call him master and they call him master twice. Master, master. In other words, hey, we followed you and you're napping and we're all going to die is basically what they're saying. And And see, Jesus wasn't expecting them or us to stand in some heroic pose in the middle of the storm, unmoved by these events. He simply calls us to manage our uncertainties by knowing that he's here and that he cares. And we put our hope in all the possibilities of that. He's here and he cares. And now think of all the possibilities that that may mean for us. I don't believe we're called to to be fearless or to have no doubts. I don't believe that was Jesus' point in this. Just like I don't believe courage is the absence of fear, we know that that's not true. Courage is the willingness to move even in spite of fears. I don't believe faith is the absence of doubt. Faith is the willingness to believe even though we have these uncertainties. When Jesus is on board, nothing is predictable. The only thing that's for sure is that he loves us And he intends what's best for us. And no chaotic storm has dominance over his authority. Those are the things he's called us to believe. He wants us to grow our confidence in his power over things that we can't control. To grow our confidence in his power to control those things that we can't control or his power over those things obedience to jesus is going to prompt us to face our fears by knowing that someone greater than our fears is present and that someone cares and can act on our behalf okay finishing up let's pick back up in verse 25 the disciples were terrified and amazed who is this man they asked each other when he gives a command even the wind and the waves obey him. I'm imagining them whispering that. <laughs> I'm sure they're not yelling it at that point. I'm sure they're kind of looking around at each other like, you know, what happened here? It's a brilliant irony. The disciples go from fear of the storm to terror in this story. It resolves with them being terrified. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you don't think that's funny. I do. You'd think that the story would end where Jesus calms the storm and, and, you know, everybody cheers, we're saved, yay, and it smiles and they're stoked and high fives all around. But see, this isn't a comic book or a sci-fi movie where people just accept fantastic events as normal. These were real people who probably had ideas about, you know, Jesus is a cool prophet or he's a gifted healer, or he's a great teacher, maybe he's the Messiah, but what they didn't expect was this. A demonstration of power that took over the reins of creation itself in a way that only creator god could do jesus is clearly more than just a prophet and that's a realization for them it's confusing and distressing as well at one time we actually you know we're we're constantly trying to figure out what the you know, do with this building or whatever. One time we thought about hanging up some, some banners just with bold statements on them or whatever. We thought about, you know, putting a banner that says word and a banner that says truth and a banner that says faith over here. And then we started thinking, "Eh, maybe WTF is not the appropriate thing to say, but then again, maybe it is because these guys are having one of those moments at, at this time. Who is this guy? That's the question that's going to underlie the rest of what Luke is going to be talking about in his gospel. And I love verse 25. It's so real. After everything that had them so upset had finally calmed down, they experience another kind of fear altogether. The fear that comes from waking up in in an unfamiliar surrounding. It's something that we have to keep in mind because this illustrates for us that obedience to Jesus... Oh, I forgot to put that one up. Obedience to Jesus will lead us into a new view of reality. See, the conclusion of this story is really about an exchange of realities. He called his disciples out on a boat away from the familiar territory of Galilee to the strange and foreign lands of the Decapolis. And he's calling them to place their trust differently from the rest of the world. And he's revealing to them a kingdom that is wildly different from what they had expected or probably even wanted. And all of this crystallizes in this holy terror as they realize that the one calling to them, calling them to to this radical kind of change may very well be God, creator God himself. And they didn't know it. It's in that moment we can see the wheels turning as they ask this question, who is this guy? Because they know in a flash of terrifying insight that this miracle not only reveals something about Jesus, but it's going to change them forever. There's no going back from something like this. This will change their perception of the world. This will change everything for them. And I think it frightens them. I remember uh, when I asked Robbie to, to marry me. She's not here, so I can talk about her, but uh, you know, and it, well, I mean, it, she, she's not here. Why? What's going on? She, she had to take a trip. She was visiting her friends. She's going to be back today. We're going to celebrate Mother's Day. Everything's fine, but well, I asked her to, to marry me, and we were kids. I mean, we were barely in our 20s, and, and I remember we sat in her VW Bug, and And, and I had this really great idea of how to ask her how to marry me. And it was very convoluted and she didn't get it. And, you know, it was was very confusing for a minute there, but we finally resolved it. And I I asked her if she'd marry me. She accepted and said, yes. And, you know, I'm walking on clouds back into my apartment and close the door behind me. And I sit down on the couch and all of a sudden, uh, it dawned on me what I had just done. And I'm not kidding. I stayed up all night. Uh, thinking about this, I was terrified. Not terrified of her or terrified of, of, you know, questioning whether or not I really loved her or anything. I was wondering if I could be good enough, if I could be a good enough man to, to be her husband. Could, could I provide like I should? And I was afraid because I had now entered into a new reality where it wasn't just me, but it was me and, and Robbie. And I knew everything was about to change. And then I remember when my, my first daughter was born and she was early and she was tiny and she barely fit here on on my forearm as I was looking at her and, and, and she was so small and yet the enormity of what she meant to me just hit me. And the same thing happened. I pretty much was up for several nights. Well, partly that was because of her, but... but <laughs> But, I had to contemplate this, what this meant, and, and who I was now that this wonderful new life had just entered mine, and I knew this was going to change everything everything is now it 's not just me and Robbie now it 's me and Robbie and Jessica, and then it expands from there, and each time the change was real, and I would say my life certainly did change for the better. I believe it 's been for the better, but this is true with our following of Jesus. There may come a time, a moment, maybe even a miracle, I don't know, where we realize this is for real, that creator God himself is laying claim to my heart and to my life, and that changes everything. It changes everything. And listen, change seems scary, but, but God's intent for change in our lives is meant to be transformative and redemptive and healing. This kind of change is a good thing, but it has to be processed through seriously and and considerately, the way the disciples are processing that in the story. Let's commit to be obedient to Christ's work in our heart and in this world. Let's come to grips with the idea that Creator God has laid claim to our hearts, to our lives, Let's think about the implications of that, of who we are because of that. Let's allow this reality to change the way we perceive ourselves and how we perceive the world around us. No longer as a clash between us and them, but as a mission to bring God's order to the chaos of this broken world, to bring light and life to places where darkness and death oppress Let's be willing to follow Jesus to uncomfortable places, even into the storms of chaos, in direct confrontation. But let's trust in his presence and in his power to make the difference, not only for ourselves, but for everybody who's around us. Let's live in this new reality where he is Lord and his authority is real and his love and his grace shine through us. Right on? All right. Very cool. Why don't you stand with me, please?